Well, thank you for introducing that new song to us. What wonderful lyrics. All praise to him indeed. Amen. And the text that's before us this morning, we are going to find even more reasons to offer him praise. And I can't wait to get into that with you. But before I do, I just want to make brief mention of the fact that this coming Friday evening is a newcomer night here for those of you who may be new to New Community Church. Uh, And that's a very important night. Uh, We want to get to know you. That's an event that takes place at my house as my wife Michelle and I host you along with some of the other leaders of the church. Uh, I would love personally the opportunity to get to know you. I know every week I run into two or three new folks or families that are here for the first time or have just recently joined us. And I just want you to know that it's, it's my desire to not just be a talking head up here on Sundays, okay? I want to know you, and I want you to have the ability to know me as well. Uh, and that event on Friday night is really uh, just for that very purpose. There is a QR code in your bulletins this morning where you can sign up. It should take you just about 10 seconds flat. And so if you're free on Friday night, consider yourself personally invited. I would love to have that time together with you. All right. Well, John chapter 14, picking up where we left off last week. Last week, we started by looking at Jesus's absolutely brilliant statement that he is the way, the truth, the life. And and last week, we looked at the reality that Jesus is the way. And here this morning, we're going to pick it up by looking at the reality that Jesus, in addition to being the way, he is also the truth. You know, in John chapter 18, a text that we will get to soon enough, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of backwater Judea, asks a question of Jesus, the king of the universe. And it's perhaps, friends, the most important question that has ever left a human mouth the most important question that anyone has ever asked at any time. And it was only three short words long. And, and his question was this, you know it, what is truth? You see, that's a really good question, Pilate. It's a great question, actually. It's a question that that man desperately needed the answer to. It's a question that every one of us needs the answer to as well. And here in this text, in John 14, Jesus is going to give us the answer to that question in detail. But as I studied this week, I got the bright idea of posing Pilate's question to the Internet. And I ended up on a philosophy website with people who had clearly appointed themselves as being prognosticators of all things wise and worldly wisdom. And so these purveyors of the truth set themselves up to answer this most important of questions. What is truth? Now I will tell you that I had at least five responses from that website that I planned on reading this morning because they were so utterly ridiculous. But for the sake of time and not spending our time on foolishness, I had to cut it down to one. So here's what Andrew from Unknown Location has to say. (laughs) Our definition of truth needs to be flexible. Truth is the thing that works. See, the lack of objective truth leaves us free to carve our own truths. Truth is mine, and my truth and your truth have no necessary relevance to each other because truth is subjective, and so I am utterly free to choose my own truths, and in so doing, I therefore shape my own life. 
Friend, if, if you did not recognize it already, that quote and dozens like it on the site prove that the internet is a dangerous place filled with people who, thinking themselves to be wise, have proven themselves to be fools. That is what that, proof, that, that quote proves to us. There is only one truth. His name is Jesus Christ, and He has claimed to be the very definition of truth. And that is the truth claim, the ultimate truth that we will examine this morning, and we will see it and how it governs our lives. We will see the way that that simple statement, Jesus is the truth, provides profound power to the living of your daily life this morning. And so we're going to dial in now and come back to answer Pilate's question, what is the truth? Well, in John 14, we're going to find the definitive answer to that. And we're also going to find an explanation of how that truth's power can be deployed in your life. And that's the subject matter that we're gathered here together this morning to look at. Now, as we get going, I want you to remember the context of what's happening here in John 13 and 14. Remember that Jesus is explaining how you and I and these men could have a better kind of relationship to God. I want you to recall that these men are absolutely terrified because they think that they're going to lose the relationship that they have flesh to flesh with Jesus. And in a sense, they, they were going to lose that. He was leaving no more would he walk with them in the flesh. But see, the whole point of, John's 14, of John 14 is Jesus' explanation that he was going to leave them something better. And that was this, once they had found the way to God through faith in Jesus' work on their behalf, he was going to give them access to the truth of God so that they could know him and that truth could reside within them and that truth could then proceed to empower everything about them leading them to a completely different revolutionary way of life that waited for them. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Last week, we looked at what it means for Jesus to be the way. We approach him through faith, faith that his words, his promises are enough. His work, it was sufficient for us, and we need nothing more than him. But today, we're going to zero in on what it means for Jesus now to be the truth. And we're going to see the clarity and power that that ought to provide us for our lives. We're going to see what having that truth living within us makes possible. And my prayer for all of us here today is that we would walk away from this text fully convinced that what we have in Jesus Christ is better, deeper, richer than you and I could possibly imagine. So, so let's, let's examine this statement that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And let's zero in now on the fact that he is not just a truth, he is the truth. Let's start by looking at the fact that he is the very person of truth, the personification of all that is true. Friends, you and I cannot carve our own truth. It flies in the face of the very definition of the word. There are not multiple truths. That defeats the purpose of having a truth. There is only one absolute truth, and the reason why there is an absolute truth is because there is an absolute creator who made all things. He set the laws of the universe, things like thermodynamics and gravity. But he didn't just stop there. He also set the moral fabric and laws of the universe. There is a truth. There is the truth. There is the right truth. You can't have multiple truths. If you have multiple truths, then one truth must be wrong because truth goes against 
error. And for there to be a truth, there must be error. You see, there is only one truth. That truth is Jesus Christ. And that, that is what Jesus says here right away in verse 7. He's wanting to show them the reality and the impact of what it means for him to be the truth. Now let me show you how this reality of him being the truth connects to your life. Jesus said here, if, verse 7, you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, first things first, as we get into verse 7 here to seek to understand and explain this, many people misinterpret the tone of this verse. See, the first time that you read it, it could sound like a rebuke. You fools don't know me. You should have known me, and the consequence of your failure is going to be X. But that's not the right tone with which you should read Jesus' statement here. See, if you and I had been there that night, we would know that Jesus' tone is not accusatory. And we know that based on the context of what Jesus is saying here. Remember, this chapter is all about Jesus comforting his men. It would not make a lot of sense for Jesus to be getting on these men just because they don't yet have something that he just offered them one verse prior. He just told them that he was leaving so that he could bring them something better. See, they don't yet have the Spirit living and dwelling within them. So they could not know him in the way that he is referencing here. It's impossible. You see what he's saying here, it's an offer, it's not a rebuke. Now let me illustrate the difference in tone between an offer and a rebuke. I could make a generic statement to you all, like, I really like coffee. And you know that already, because I've told you. But you'd all be sitting here trying to process what, what to do with that information. I really like coffee. How much sense would it make for me to immediately swing into action before any of you have had a chance to respond and say, why aren't you all jumping up and going to get me a cup? I just told you I really like coffee. How how could I expect you to now respond to that? If my purpose was to build a better relationship to you, which was Jesus' purpose here in the text, if that was my purpose, I would say, I really like coffee. And because I like coffee so much, I'd like to go have a cup with you every day from here on out. You see, that's the difference between a rebuke, why haven't you gotten me one, and an offer, let's go have one together. See, that's the difference of what's happening here in the tones. Jesus is not rebuking them, he's making an offer to them. It's why he says, and from now on you do know him and have seen him. So what is the substance of this offer that Jesus is giving? Friends, it is nothing short than the full and unfettered knowledge of God. You see that word there being used, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you do know him. That's the substance of what he's offering. See how he emphasizes the importance of knowing the truth? And that becomes very significant for us then. Because your greatest need, my greatest need, every human being's greatest need is to know God. That's a need that I think is most clearly stated over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, where we're told that the King of kings and Lord of lords, he dwells in unapproachable light. He is one whom no one has ever seen, nor can anyone ever see him. And that's a really powerful problem for each and every one of us. See, life is defined as the state of knowing God. 
And death was introduced when mankind was separated from that knowledge of God. And it's that very problem, the fact that God is unapproachable and He exists in a place where we cannot see or know Him, that Jesus is seeking to address here as He inaugurates the new covenant with these men. See, the point of the new covenant is that God was going to establish a kind of relationship with you, one where He dwells within you, and as the Old Testament explains, that relationship, that new covenant relationship that Jesus came to offer, it would be better because it would come with a comprehensive knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of the truth about God that makes the new covenant so famous in Scripture. Remember the statements back in Jeremiah 24, 7, where God prophesies and says, I will give them a new heart to know that I am the Lord. And then, knowing me, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Remember the statement in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32? No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. You see, it's the knowledge of God that we most need. And it's the knowledge of God that Jesus came to offer and make possible. And that is the significance of his statement, I am the truth. I am the way for you to get knowledge of God. And he explains that to them here in verse 7, if you're reading it right. He says, if you had known me, you would know my Father also, and from now on you will know me, and you will see and know my Father. See, that's what he's talking about here. Now, to just drive that point home here, this idea of this being an offer, where Christ is offering you the knowledge of God in himself because he is one with God, it is important to understand that Jesus uses two very different words in this verse for this idea of knowing him and knowing God. There's two completely separate words that are used here, and our English translation kind of obscures it because we have one word, to know is to know, but not in the original language. There's two separate words, and that's not just a stylistic shift. No, it's a fundamental distinction in the nature of the relationship that Jesus is seeking to bring to these men. You see, the very first usage that he makes here is if you had known me, and he uses the word gnosko, which means to have an internal experiential kind of relationship, a, a knowledge that wells up from within and is the most intimate kind of knowledge. If you had a relational internal knowledge of me, then you would have known my father also. And there he uses the word oida. The reason why I actually use those words is to show you that they're two completely separate words that are a long way off from each other. And that second usage of this idea to know is not an internal usage. No, it's an external manifestation, the ability to now comprehend and fully experience and, and walk in relationship to on the outside. See, the sense of what he's saying here to these men is this. If, if you had had an experiential knowledge of the relationship that I'm talking about, which you couldn't have had because I haven't left yet and the Spirit hasn't come, then you would know what it means to see and know the Father fully. See, he's making them an offer. And the glory of that offer is that he's saying, guys, 
that new kind of knowledge, this internal relational knowledge, is exactly what I'm bringing to you starting now. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. See, that's why we say this is not a rebuke. This is an offer, a glorious offer of the truth, the knowledge of God, so that you and I can have clarity, so that you and I can have the power that we need for living, so that you and I can know and comprehend the reality of the greatness of the Father that is made manifest to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what that means for you right now. If you want to know the truth, you need to see Jesus. You don't need to read the news. I'm convinced those people don't know anything about what is true versus what is false. You don't need social media. That's certainly not going to help you there. You don't need a friend group or a think tank. And you certainly do not need the Internet. You need instead to read your Bible because that is the place where the truth of God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ through the illumination of the Spirit of Christ. What you need if you would know the truth about God is to see the glory of Jesus Christ put on display. And that only is put on display through the truth that has been recorded, revealed, and is now being illuminated to us through the Spirit of God. You see, He is the one, Hebrews 1.3 tells us, that is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the one, Colossians 1 tells us, who is the very image of invisible God. And now here He stands with these men offering to them and to you by extension a full-blown experiential knowledge of God who is himself the very standard of truth. You want clarity? Look at Jesus because Jesus Christ being one with the Father, he is the only one who can define what is true. Now, you take that assertion that I just made. Jesus is the only definition of truth. You take that out into the field. You take that out into the world and say, there's one truth and Jesus is that truth. And you're going to be met with a chorus of, says who? Prove it. See, you can't just say, I'm right and you all are wrong. You've got to be able to back it up. And so that's exactly what Jesus does next here in the text. He offers us the proof that what he has just claimed is actually valid. Here's the proof of truth. And he points back again to himself. The proof of the truth. You can see it here in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 begins with Philip essentially demanding that Jesus prove it. And if we can boil it down here, he basically says, I believe you, but can you prove it for us? Philip said to him in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. See, the disciples, they're hearing what Jesus is saying, but they're not so sure. How can a relationship where you're gone be better than a relationship when you're here? We hear you, but we're a little skeptical. We're not quite buying what you're selling yet because what you're saying sounds counterintuitive. See, their goal is to make sure that nothing about their current relationship to Jesus changes. And that's a problem because Jesus' goal is to make sure that everything about the nature of their relationship to, excuse me, everything about the nature of their relationship to him changes. But before the disciples are willing to accept what Jesus is saying, Philip represents them and says, we're going to have to have some proof. Now, we know some things already about Philip. 
do we not? I mean, this is now the third time that Philip has made his little cameo appearances in the Gospel of John. Started in chapter 1, continued in chapter 6. Now he comes back up here again in chapter 14. But I would direct your attention back to the story in John chapter 6 because there we learn that Philip is a processor. Philip is a problem solver. Philip is a cold calculating logician. You remember the story, don't you? The crowd runs out of food and everybody's scrambling around with the question of how are we going to feed these people? And Jesus turns specifically by name to Philip to test him. And Jesus asks Philip, so Philip, how are we going to feed these people? Philip looks around, you, you're talking to me? And, and what happens? His mind immediately goes into cash register mode as he starts calculating dollars and cents. It would take a lot of money to feed all these people, he blurts out. See, here's a man who can take the information in and can then process it, process it with cold, hard logic. And that is exactly what he does here in the text. Okay, Jesus, I hear you. I even see you. And I've thought up until now that I do know you. But we still can't see the Father. So you're going to have to prove to us what you're saying. Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Now that sounds to us in our ears like a pretty brash, assuming sort of a request. But I don't think that it actually is. It's a question that is really reminiscent of Moses' demand over in Exodus 33. Remember that text? Where Moses says to Yahweh there, show me your glory. Show it to me. And what was Yahweh's response to Moses? Moses, no man can see my glory and live, but I'll show you just a glimpse of it so that you can know and believe in me. And then he goes on to, to put Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers him over while he passes by. And as he goes by, we're told that Moses is allowed to catch just a, a little glimpse of the backside of the glory of God as it, as it vanishes around the corner. And what was the manifestation of that glory? It was this statement. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You know, it's possible, even probable, that Philip had that very text in his mind when he made this request. He's remembering Moses, where God told him, Moses, I am who I am. And Moses said, prove it. And God did. Here, Philip hears Jesus saying, the same Yahweh, I am who I am, and I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so Philip, like Moses, says, prove it. But there's a problem with Philip's logic, and that is what drives Jesus' next statement and provides us with all the proof that we need to believe it, because Jesus had already proven it for Philip. Unlike in Moses' situation, Jesus Christ had come and he had fully revealed to these men the whole nine yards of God's glory. See, he had shown these men everything that they needed to know about the nature of who God is, and that sets the tone here now in Jesus' voice as you get down into verse 9, where Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, he's been there for three years now. How could you ask him this? I mean, after all, in John chapter 1, 
the very chapter where Philip first met Jesus, weren't we already told in verse 18 that no man has ever seen God, but the only God, Jesus, who has sat at the Father's right hand, He has made Him known? So Philip, you know this. In light of what Jesus has already shown you, how can you say, show us the Father? Have you not been paying attention? See, folks, it was their very inability to see the Father that mandated the departure of Jesus. Because once he had gone, he would no longer be to them just another man at dinner. No, he would be the very spirit of truth who now took up residence inside of them. And so he had to leave so that the spirit of truth could come and take up residence within them. He had to leave so that he could bring to them and to us something better. And what is that? a full-blown, internalized, comprehensive, experiential, relational knowledge of God. And it is that work of Jesus Christ whereby He enters into our hearts now by way of faith that is the living proof that we now have been able to see the Father because we know His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the proof that Jesus furnishes to Philip here in verses 10 and 11. You see, Jesus, with infinite patience, he answers Philip's demand. He helps him see that he had already shown them the Father, the God of Moses, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That God had already fully manifested himself. Had not Jesus made that God known to these men? And so in verse 10, he says, Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? That's the proof that I am who I say I am. Look at the nature of who I am. Philip, have you ever seen me commit a single act of sin? Have you ever seen me, Philip, speak with an impatient word? Have you ever seen me commit any sort of sinful action whatsoever? No, Philip, that's proof that the Father is in me. And it's also proof that I am in the Father. Jesus says, you need proof, Philip. Just look at the nature of who you know I already am. You see, that's the proof that Jesus offers. It's himself. Just look at what I've shown you already, Philip. Second, Jesus says, you can can keep going and you can look at my words. He says, the words that I say to you, Philip, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works, he says. You want to know if what I'm telling you is true or not? Well, then listen to what I'm saying. Because these words aren't the words of just a mere man, a mortal. These are words that come from God himself, for he is in me, Jesus says. And then he gives Philip one more line of evidence. He says, look, if my nature and my words aren't enough, then Philip, for crying out loud, just consider my works for a minute. Has not my work been sufficient to prove to you already that I am God? He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you can't believe that, then at least believe on account of the works that I've shown you already. You see, when Philip asks Jesus for proof of who God is, where does Jesus point? Right back at himself. He was, is the living, breathing standard of what is true. And he points at himself to demonstrate that reality. And so Jesus then, in these verses that I've just read for you, he 
he admonishes Philip three times in verses 12 through 14 to believe. Do you not believe? Believe. Believe, he says there. And if you will, well then, Philip, you will very soon discover the power of the truth fully deployed within your life. And this, my friends, this is where we now get down into the power of what it means to know for yourself the truth of Christ and to have the power of His truth resident within your heart, to have that internal kind of knowledge of God that leads you to be able to see God and walk with God on the outside. It always flows from the inside. Here's the power of what it means for for that truth to take up its residence within you. And now in these next verses, Jesus makes some incredible promises to Philip as he seeks to show and explain to Philip the promise of the power of what he is making available to them. Here we see the power of the truth, verses 12 through 14. Look at these verses with me. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You want to know how having the truth inside of you is better than having the embodiment of truth next to you? Well, just wait until you see what happens next, Jesus says. And what did happen next? See, friend, here is the shocking reality of what it means to have the truth living inside of you. The work that Jesus does when he invades your heart and transforms your soul is a work that is greater in scale and scope than any single miracle he ever did during his time here on earth. Just let that settle in for a minute. You have already experienced, if you know Jesus Christ, if your heart has been transformed by him, the greatest miracle possible. See, Jesus spent... He spent his his whole time on earth fixing broken bodies and meeting physical needs. Every single miracle, it it meant meant a temporary kind of problem. But none of them addressed the permanent reality of our really big problem. And that's our own inability to know God, to know the truth. But now... When that truth takes up its residence within your life, well, here comes the greatest, biggest miracle of all. It's the transformation of a wicked, dead heart. That is the greatest work. See, this is not, this passage, a promise about a Christian's ability to do signs and wonders here. And we know that because the disciples, even though they did do miracles after Jesus left, they never did miracles that were greater and grander in scale or scope and exceeded the ones that were done by Jesus. Their miracles weren't greater in quantity. Their miracles weren't greater in quality. So clearly here in verse 12, Jesus has to be talking about a different kind of work altogether. What kind of work is he talking about? Well, I ask you, what is the only kind of work that is superior to the feeding of 20,000 people from a couple of fishes and two loaves? It's the offer of the bread of life that satisfies a man's soul forever. I ask you, what is the only work that is superior to giving sight to a blind man? It's seeing the light of the world come in and enlighten the hearts of those who would believe. What is the only kind of work that is superior to the raising of a dead man's body? It's the ability to raise that dead man's soul. 
You see, what Jesus is talking about here when he refers to these greater works that are about to be done, it is the transformative work of salvation. You see, during the time of his ministry, very few people came to saving faith in him. That's what he's saying. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Jesus did lead certain ones to a saving, transformative faith in himself, but they weren't many. I ask you, how many people hung around until the day of the ascension when Jesus returned to the glory of God in heaven? 500. That's it. After all the words and all the works and all the, all the explanations of himself, 500 measly disciples are left. That doesn't seem like much has changed. But that's why Jesus says, when I leave, you all are going to do greater works than just the transformation of those 500. Greater works than these will you do because I am leaving to go to the Father. What happened? As soon as the spirit of truth came and took up its residence within the disciples, well, they began to proclaim that message of truth that now lived within them. And the result was greater works that resulted than, than anything that had been accomplished during the ministry of Jesus. And what happened? The gospel rocketed around the Roman world. You see three, four, five thousand souls being instantly set afire at a single time. That is the greater work that is accomplished by the power of truth living in the heart of the disciple. It's the utter transformation of a life, a truth that is so powerful that it not only changes you, but it must spill forth from you with volcanic kind of force. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. This is the power of the truth when it gets unleashed in the life of a disciple. It's a power that was going to go on to turn the world upside down. The power to renovate a heart, a life-giving, course-altering power that changes you now from the inside out, that grabs you out of the kingdom of darkness and transforms you, transferring you over into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is offering to these men here, a different, more powerful kind of relationship where they could know God, for he would be living inside of them. That's what he's offering to these men, something far beyond what they had ever imagined. That's what he offers them. But look, that's what he also offers us. Whoever would believe will have this greater power living within him and these works shall be done in you and they shall be done through you. Now that, my friends, is a statement that probably made Philip's eyes bulge out of his head just a little bit. And the reason for that is because this statement here would have struck Philip in a very personal way. See, Jesus has already made this statement once in this gospel back on the day when he first met Philip remember John chapter 1 verse 43 where Jesus finds Philip and Nathanael and he says guys follow me and then he proceeds to display a supernatural level of knowledge about what was in their hearts and he goes on to say to them you guys think that my knowledge of you is amazing well you are going to see greater things than even this now, over those intervening three years, Philip has been assuming that all the miracles he is witnessing were those greater things that Jesus has been promising. But that was incorrect. And that's what Jesus tells him here. 
You see, they had followed Jesus to begin with because Jesus knew them in a supernatural way. But now Jesus explains to them, I'm offering you, Philip, a supernatural knowledge of me. He turns it around. That is the greatest kind of miracle. Not just that I would know you, but that you now would be enabled to know me, Philip. That's the greatest work. And that's what he's saying to Philip. Now, there may have been some disappointment in Philip's heart at that news. You're going to give us a spiritual kind of power? Jesus, we're living in a very physical world. How, how, does, how does a spiritual kind of power help us when you're telling us you're leaving us here in this place? And perhaps you're sitting here too this morning sharing in that disappointment just a little bit. Wait, the greatest miracle? The greatest one is the fact that my heart can be transformed by the truth of Jesus Christ, that he now lives inside of me and speaks through me, through his word to, to those who need to hear. That's the greatest miracle? Well, what about all the things that exist here in this world that, that need to be addressed? Well, Jesus goes on, and I have news for you if that describes you. The power of truth in your life, it is not just a spiritual truth that impacts the heart and then is useless for life. No, the truth is the most powerful force in your life. It directs, it shapes, it fashions you. More than that, it empowers everything about your walk with God. See, that's what Jesus goes on to explain here in verse 13. See, this is how the power of the truth should be used within your life today. Whatever you ask in Jesus' name, it will be granted to you. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I know you all are sitting there with, a lot of questions coming out of that promise. Wait a minute. New car? New house? Healing? The end of my trial? Just ask in Jesus' name and he will do it? Is that what that means? Well, I think we all know that that's not what that means. But there's a lot of people in our world today, in the church today, who actually do believe that. I mean, one of the most popular songs on the Christian radio right now is a song that simply repeats... In Jesus' name, over and over and over again, as though it was some magical incantation. Just say it with enough force, and it'll be hocus-pocus presto magic. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. See, you have to key in specifically on what he says there at the end of verse 13. So, here's the purpose, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And therein lies a powerful hint about how this works. The whole point here is that you would ask in line with the will of God with an eye towards bringing Him glory rather than yourself. But if you're asking for yourself and your own sake, that doesn't bring glory to the Father. But if you're praying in accordance with the will of God that has been revealed in the Word of God, then the Father is glorified according to His will and the Son empowers the fulfillment of those requests according to the will of God so that God might be glorified. So, so how does that work practically? How do you know if your request is in line with the will of God? Well, first ask yourself the question, is this truth given in Scripture? See, to ask something in Jesus' name, it simply means that you are an agent of Christ as you now go about not your own work and life, but His work and the life that He has given to you. 
to pray in Jesus' name means that I am willing to not only depend upon him and his strength for living, but also I am willing to submit everything happening to me and my desires to the sovereignty of his will. That's what we mean when we pray anything in Jesus' name. That's not some frivolous formula that we tack on to the end of our prayers, hoping that now, because I said it, God will really listen to me. No, when we pray in Jesus' name, it is an acknowledgement that I am nothing here now but your humble servant, and I submit all of my desires to your will, and I am fully dependent upon you now for everything. And Jesus says, if that is the way you truly are approaching my throne, then I stand behind you and I will empower you and I will do all of those things that are according to my will and bring my Father glory. See, that's what he's telling us here. The truth within your life that you now have the ability to align yourself with the purposes, plans, and desires of God. That is the effect of the truth within your life. You have been so radically transformed that now you are able to live with Him in such a way that, that His will, His purposes begin to replace your own will, your own purposes. You're dependent on Him. You're submissive to Him. That's what it looks like to pray in the name of Jesus. As he is made glorious, as his power is made perfect through your moment of weakness. See, going back to the question that we started with here this morning, what is truth? Jesus Christ is truth. And you, now with the spirit of Christ inside of you, and the word of Christ before you, you, my friend, you have access to a better relationship now than anything that those disciples at that particular moment ever could possibly have imagined. And what is the power of that truth deployed within your life? Well, now you can live a transformed life. You can live a life that is truly alive and no longer walking around in death. That's the greatest miracle, that you're alive, spiritually speaking, not dead. And in addition to that, Jesus says, you can pursue the purposes of God with Jesus Christ himself standing at your back. You can, you can talk with God. You can walk with God having the kind of relationship with him where he who once was invisible to you and far away has now drawn near and listens to your very prayers. That's the power of what the truth in your life produces. A meaningful, vibrant, better, deeper, richer, comprehensive kind of relationship. And that is what Jesus is offering to those those who will come to him in faith and simply Philip, Peter, Nathaniel, believe. He says the same thing here to us this morning. Will we believe and see in him the way? Because if we would find in him the way to be reconciled to God, well, then he puts his spirit of truth within us and all of the power of God behind us. And that, my friends, is what it means to know the life. We'll look at that next time. But before we close here this morning, there, there's one last question that I think an attentive listener may be asking at this point. Look, if the truth is so very powerful, 
then why was Philip's faith so very weak here in this text? You know, it's pretty clear that his relationship to Jesus at this point in his life was inferior. He needed something superior, and that's why Jesus had to go. See, Philip didn't just need Jesus with him, he needed Christ in him. So, once Jesus left and the spirit of truth took up residence within Philip, what happened? Did it work? What happened to Philip? Well, listen to this account now from Acts chapter 8, verse 27. Now, there was an Ethiopian, you all know the story, who had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning back to his home, and he was seated in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit, that's the Spirit of Jesus, who now lives inside of Philip, says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet, and he asked, do you understand what you are reading? What's that a question of? Sir, do you know the way? And the eunuch said to Philip, well, how can I unless someone guides me? See, this man needed to know the truth. Philip has that truth. And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And then Philip opened his mouth. He shared the truth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What is that? That's the offer of life. And the eunuch commanded now the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. What just happened? The greatest kind of miracle where a dead man is brought to life there before Philip's eyes through the words that come spilling out of Philip. Why? Because he has the truth living in him empowering him and when they came up out of the water the spirit of the lord carried philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and that man went on his way rejoicing knowing the fullness of life see friend philip he found the way he knew the truth he knew the superiority of what it meant for the spirit of christ to now live within him and it brought to him a powerful life with powerful results that was worth living for God through the power of Jesus' name. And next week, we'll take time to look at the fruit and the vibrancy of what that life looks like if you know the truth having come through the way. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our Father God, we do thank you for the truth of who Jesus Christ is in him. We see your heart, we see your nature, and we know you in the fullness of everything that that knowledge brings to us. So, Lord, may we be people who bow our hearts to the truth, having a genuine relationship to you, because the Spirit of Christ now lives within us. May we walk with him. May we come to you and submit our requests to you according to your will with an eye towards your glory rather than our own. And may we walk in full dependency upon the power of the spirit of truth who now lives within us. And may we know a life that is indeed better, richer, deeper, and full because we now see Jesus. We pray these things in his most precious name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and conclude by reading from 2 John, verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us 
from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Go in grace today.